get refreshed. He's backpacking with some friends of his, some pastor friends. And so uh, if you think about him, let's pray for his refreshment, his encouragement, and uh, that he'd be strengthened in the Lord and hopefully come back even more ready to serve and shepherd us. Amen? Well, hey, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. And uh, we're continuing our series, our teaching series in the book of Philippians. Philippians is what, uh, in what we call the New Testament. It's a small little letter. It's after Ephesians and uh, right before Colossians. A little Bible hack I learned a long time ago, I think in youth group, is girls eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So those books are all right in there. So maybe that'll help you this morning. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be in verse 27 all the way through chapter 2, verse 11. Last week, if you were with us, um, Sam was preaching from the first part of chapter 1. And Paul is saying that he's in prison. He's writing from prison. This is one of the prison epistles. And he's writing and he's saying that his imprisonment is actually providentially working out for the furtherance of the gospel. Amazingly, God is actually able to do that somehow. And that he was confident that, uh, that the Lord was going to release him from prison and that the Lord would continue to use him to influence uh, the Philippians, that he's going to come out to them again. And that's how he finishes in verse 26. But I want you to look with me at verse 27, the first part of verse 27, as we kind of set up our big idea this morning. Paul, continuing his thought, he says, as he now focuses not on himself, but on the Philippians, says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this is our big idea today, living worthy of the gospel. This word conduct is uh, it's citizen language. Its root word is polis, which is where we get our word city or town. So this is citizen language. Paul is saying, as citizens of heaven, we're to live worthy of the gospel which God has called us and saved us through. Actually, you can scan over to chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. It's not Rome. Ultimately, it's not America. It's ultimately not Grant's Pass or White City or wherever you come from but it's to King Jesus into uh, heaven. In Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14, Paul says, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so as Christians, Paul's gonna exhort us today, there's actually ways that we begin to live into a, a life that's worthy of the gospel. This message that saved us, that the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again, offering us eternal life and eternal security in his presence forever, this message, God actually expects us to live in light of it, to live worthy of that message. And so that's what Paul's gonna exhort us to today. He's gonna give three different descriptions of what it looks like to live worthy of the gospel. Like how do I live as a citizen of heaven? What does that look like? He's gonna tell us it's striving together, it is suffering, and it also means humility. So let's pray, and then uh, we'll just get into it and unpack it together. Father, we are desperate for your spirit to teach us your word. Lord, I pray for myself that you would uh, use me, Lord, to be a vessel this morning to 
encourage and exhort with your word, your people. Lord, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see what it looks like to live worthy of the gospel. I pray for those of us who come in with heavy, burdened hearts, maybe even feeling condemned and worn out, Lord, that you would strengthen and encourage and and build them up. I pray for those of us who feel cold towards you and indifferent towards you and tired and bored with Christianity. I pray, Lord, today that you would light a fire in those of us who are feeling that way, that we would be excited about living worthy of the gospel, this great gospel of Jesus. So, Lord, lead us now, teach us now, by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So living worthy of the gospel, first we're gonna see is, it means to strive together. And we're gonna see this in verse 27 and some other places. Read with me in verse 27, and then we'll jump down to verse one and two of chapter two. Living worthy of the gospel means striving together. Verse 27, Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Why? So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, if I stay here in prison, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together, there's our key word, for the faith of the gospel. And then jump with me in chapter two, verse one and two. And listen to the together language. Listen to the unity. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do you hear the together language? So this is what Paul is getting at, that we're, as we're living in light of the gospel, living worthy of the gospel, it means that we're striving together. That word striving together in the Greek language, it means to contend with an opponent together. It's to compete athletically together. Think about a volleyball team. I've never played professionally in any kind of way, but I have been known to play some sand volleyball. Beach sand volleyball, is that how you say it? Uh, anyways, Think about how you compete together. You're trying to set up the other player for success so that you can get the ball over the net. That's what Paul is saying. As Christians, we strive together. We contend together against the enemy and for the kingdom of God. And and why do we do this? Verse 27, like what is the point? Is it so we can sing kumbaya? So that we can navel gaze and coddle? He says it's standing are striving together for what? For the faith of the gospel. This means that the gospel, this message that we are believing in that has saved us, that's the purpose why we get together and do things together. That's why we strive together. So this means that the gospel ought to be the driving force behind every Bible study at Philippi Church. The faith of the gospel ought to be the purpose behind every women's retreat. The faith of the gospel ought to be the center of every counseling session, every encouraging phone call, every coffee meeting with Bibles open. Why? Is it to navel gaze? Is it to just look inward? No, it's for the faith of the gospel. That one another at Philippi Church, we'd be built up in our faith in the gospel and that we'd bring other people into the kingdom of God by the the gospel. And this is why at Philippi Church, you've probably seen our sticker on our website. It's, our mantra is what? This is a good test. 
transforming lives with the gospel. We don't say this enough. Transforming lives with the gospel. We believe that the gospel alone has the power to transform our lives. No other self-help book or psychology or pagan ideologies, nothing can transform our lives like the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying. It's for the faith of the gospel. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. It's the dynamite of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we are not ashamed of the gospel. Why we're here together, striving together, why we got up early, got our coffee, and came into this place is for the faith of the gospel, that we would grow to be more like Jesus, more effective in his kingdom, more equipped for his kingdom, and that we would put a dent in our community in the, in the kingdom of darkness. It's pretty exciting stuff. And a church that strives together for anything other than the faith of the gospel is missing its mark. And it's doomed to fail its God-given purpose. There's a book, uh, if you're interested on church ministry stuff, there's a book called Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And the author, I think, is uh, Tom Rainer, And he goes and he interviews churches that have died all over America. Churches that have failed their mission. And trying to see, is there a common theme? Is there a thread that is common throughout all these dying churches that maybe we can learn from their mistakes? And he says this, he says, rarely could anyone point to a singular event or historical moment where the purpose was forgotten. It was a deadly and slow process. Attitudes shifted from gospel-centered and other-centered to self-centered. An outward focus became an inward obsession. Routine, check this, this is going to check all of our hearts. Routines and traditions and rituals replace the original purpose of being a gospel-driven people. Now, as a church plant, we've only, a church startup sometimes, as Sam likes to say, we've only been here for about a year and a half, going on two years, and so there's a freshness. There's not really many ruts that we've gotten into. There's not many routines and traditions and rituals, but as soon as every year we start having that kids play, well, that's what we do at Philippi. We have the kids play every Christmas, which I'm, I love kids plays. I think, Sam, we should do it, okay? But when that's what the center of our church is about, we've always done it this way. You know this to be dangerous, don't you? If you've been in church for any amount of time, a church that's focused on that other than the gospel and that becomes its main thing is in a, a, a dangerous place. You know, you can think of a zillion different examples of rituals and traditions, inward focus that will ultimately lead a church to its ruin. So practically speaking, as we're thinking at Philippi Church in Grants Pass in 2021, what does it look like to strive together for the faith of the gospel, to live worthy of this gospel calling here in Grants Pass? A couple different ideas um, that come right out of scripture that I think are helpful for us to remember as we're considering uh, this call to strive together. One way that we strive together for the faith of the gospel is in mission. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, go therefore, after he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is our mission. 
Again, if a church becomes inward focused, I come for the good teaching and the coffee and the donuts and that's it for my Christianity, then what's, what's the purpose? You're missing the faith of the gospel and your part in it. Everyone has a part to play in this mission. Your gifting might be different than the person's next to you, but you have some, if the Spirit of God resides in you, you have at least one manifestation of his power and his gifting in your life. What is that gifting? What is that area that you say, that makes me excited about church and about mission. I want to be about that. Then plug into that. We need you. Philippi Church needs your gifts and passions for mission. Another way that we strive together for the faith of the gospel is in encouragement. It's mutual encouragement. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, he's, uh, and the author of Hebrews is warning against the hardening, hardening of the heart because of the deceitfulness of sin. Anyone can vouch for the deceitfulness of sin. Um, feeling that even just yesterday. He says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Okay, so how should I go about that? He says, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. Why? So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You and I are desperately in need for Christians to come and point out our blind spots and say, brother, sister, I want to encourage you. I think you're being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So that also means that we have people in our lives Christians in our life who are close enough to us that can actually approach us and encourage us in that way. If you don't know someone and you don't know where they might be struggling or a sin that they would suffer with or, or be tempted with, then you might know how, not know how to encourage them. You don't, might not have the discernment to know how to kind of get in there. And so not saying that we should know everyone perfectly in this room to be able to encourage each other on that level, but maybe striving for the faith of the gospel looks like meeting with someone this week and encouraging them asking them, hey, how's that sin going? I had a brother that I went on a hike with. I didn't even know this guy very well. But we went on this hike, and on the hike, he said, hey, what's your worst sin? I'm like, that's a great question. Let's talk about that. <laughs> and uh, I recently met with one of you, and I asked you that question. What is your worst sin? Like, what are you struggling with? Because we tiptoe around this stuff, don't we? Put on our mask, we're doing okay, but what if we just said, yeah, I just... I have a hard time loving my wife like Jesus called me to love my wife. Then you know how to encourage me. How are you loving your wife? Are you treating her fair? Does she know that you love her? Are you serving her? Whatever that looks like for you. Okay, we strive together in mission, mutual encouragement. Lastly, this is an area that we can all maybe get better at is spiritual warfare. We strive together in spiritual warfare. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 10, and 11, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God so that you, that's a plural you, so it's y'all, so that y'all will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This means it's not just the lone wolf mentality where I don't need anyone to help in my spiritual battle. I need other Christians to be praying for me so that when I'm struggling with that temptation or that deceptive thought from the enemy, I text someone and they know about it. I need to band together with other people to put up shields with other brothers and sisters to strive together for the faith of the gospel against the enemy. I've heard several people, late, just lately, it feels like Satan is after us as a church. Now always he's after us as a church, amen? We have a, an enemy who's roaring around, you know, he's prowling around like a roaring lion. 
And so we need to be able to discern with one another how we can get into the fight with each other. Um, and so, and, and don't be fooled. If you're someone who says, yeah, demons, come on, that's kind of New Testament stuff, but we don't really have demons attacking us today, do we? You better believe it. And especially as a church, if we're pressing into our God-given mission here in Grants Pass, Satan hates it. Demons hate it. And so we have to be um, striving together in spiritual warfare. Maybe that looks like when you're meeting with someone or you're talking with someone and there's just this unusual discouragement or despair that's setting in over them. What if you asked, hey, could this be the enemy? Could this be more than you having a bad day? Could it be the enemy kind of spiraling something out of control in your heart and your mind? Um, It could look a lot of different ways. But spiritual warfare, I think it's important that we strive together in that way too. So living worthy of the gospel means striving together. Uh, Striving, uh, living worthy of the gospel also means suffering. Um, Look with me in verse 28. Living worthy of the gospel means suffering. Paul says, in no way, alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Really quick, Paul says that these opponents and their opposition of your faith, it's actually a sign in two ways. It's a sign to them of their coming destruction. If, those, if people are opposing you for your faith, that means it's a sign of their destruction because they're against Jesus. They're not just against you, they're against the Jesus in you, right? So that's a sign of their coming destruction and their judgment, but it's also a sign of your salvation. I think what Paul means by that is to say that if you're being opposed in some way or another for your faith, it's actually evidence that you're doing what God has called you to do. Jesus said, if you love me, the world's gonna hate you. And so it's actually evidence, a sign of your salvation. Uh, Christians, we've been having more and more pressure put on us, haven't we? It seems like there's coming persecution uh, for us. And so we're, we're uncomfortable with this here in the West. Um, but it's something that we, we need to get ready for. We might today, for the Philippians, it look, might look different. Maybe they were going to be thrown into a lion's den with Paul. But for us, maybe we're opposed for our convictions of biblical manhood and womanhood. Hey, that's old school. Complementarianism, ooh, that's kind of old school, isn't it? Some of you are looking at me like, what's he going to say? Like, that's as far as I'm going. But biblical manhood and womanhood as God lays it out, gosh, that's kind of embarrassing. Aren't you embarrassed of your God? Nope. Nope, I think he's wise. Maybe we're opposed for our beliefs about the exclusivity of Christ in salvation. Gosh, people are angry for Christians believing that Jesus could be the only way. What a bigot. How narrow-minded are you? Don't you see all the other ways that someone could come to a saving knowledge of, of some God out there? Maybe we're opposed. I'm going to leave this one out. Verse 29. I shouldn't even said anything. Just like to keep you guessing. What's he got? What's he got on there? Preach it, brother. That's all I got. Um, verse 29 says, "For to you it has been granted." This is such an interesting verse. For to you it has been granted. Uh, the, the root word is, is uh, the same word we get grace from. It's been granted, graced for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. 
verse 30, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So Paul is saying in the same way that God graces you with salvation, we love that. We love that gift of salvation. We love that gift of grace. He says in the same way God is gifting you, granting you with suffering. You'll hear the- theologians and pastors, I, I hear them, I, I'm, I'm definitely skeptical that say, you know, I don't have a category for suffering in my Christian theology. That there is no way that God, uh, someone can be living a righteous Christian life and be suffering. Yet this verse totally goes against that, doesn't it? It says that God himself is granting us the opportunity to suffer for his name's sake. I say if you don't have a category for suffering as a Christian, you're not going to do well. Because everyone suffers in, in one way or another. Jesus warned of, of this reality that we would face suffering in john 15 19 he said if you were of the world the world would love its own but because you are not of the world i chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you man as christians don't we have this temptation to be cool in the light of in in the eyes of the world if, if the world could just accept us as christians if they would just like us jesus said the world hates you We love the world. We're pursuing the world so that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, but we have to know that they hate us. Doesn't matter how much smoke and lights we have on our stages. They hate us, and they need Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says in his pastoral letter to Timothy, he says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. One more, Acts 14.22, Paul says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. God. So this is part of the Christian faith, and not just part of it, like as a consequence, God actually grants it to us. How sovereign is your God? God's not like, shoot, I didn't see that suffering coming your way. In some way, you can study this on your own, but God is ordaining and packaging our suffering and walking us through it, surely, but he's in charge of it, and he's sovereign over it. And sadly, for for many of us, we there's a huge temptation to avoid the opposition, to avoid the suffering and the persecution. We'll, we'll adopt godless ideologies. Paul calls it the traditions of men, empty deception. Gosh, I'll just say it. I, I remember when this whole, when all the race riots started going on and the BLM protests and we're all kind of wondering, are these guys good? Are they, are they not good? I can remember hearing pastors say that we need to repent of whiteness to cast out the demon of whiteness. Am I allowed to say this? To repent of white privilege, to avoid opposition and suffering because everyone is talking about it. It's trending. We, we need to be about, we, all we talk about is racism and if you're white, you need to repent of that because of the, the color of your skin. This is wrong in so many ways. That's racist. That's not Christianity. There's no gospel. This goes back to our first point. It's not for the faith of the gospel. It's to be cool and liked by our culture. It's to avoid the opposition from our culture. When we say, no, actually the gospel is sufficient to address racism, guess what? That's not trendy. That's not getting on any Instagram feeds. So yeah, there's just like this, we, we fear the opposition or You've seen this. Entire Christian denominations have folded, have folded and collapsed under the pressure of the opposition from the world. 
we have a church, a quote-unquote church up the street who's flying a gay flag this morning. Do we love gay people? Do we love those who, yes, my goodness. But when a church is flying a gay flag, it's, I think, in part because they've forsaken the gospel and they've folded under the pressure from the world who says, well, you need to include us. If you can't say that two men are married in the eyes of God and that's okay, then, then you're not legit. And so entire denominations have folded under this. There was a liberal Presbyterian church in Ashland where I used to pastor. And on their homepage, like right when you pull up their website, this is what they say about themselves. We are committed to Christ's sacred hospitality, inviting people of all races, ages, genders, sexual orientations, and mental, mental and physical conditions to join us. Through Christ's grace, we are dedicated to doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. Now, that sounds good. But if that's the content, if that's everything this church is about, it's not the faith of the gospel, then again, I, I would argue that it's because they want to avoid opposition. We, we don't want the pressure from the world. And so churches are caving over this stuff. You see it happening. And so as Philippi Church, we need to be ready to stand firm, strive together for the faith of the gospel. I'm not embarrassed about my Bible, nor should you be. And, and it's not because, well, I'm American, so therefore, no, I'm a Christian. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. I believe that God has revealed himself through his word and most especially through his son, Jesus Christ. And the gospel is true. And, uh, and that's gonna bring suffering and persecution for us. Early on in the church's history, when the church in the early, the first chapters of the book of Acts was exploding, the Pharisees and uh, the Sadducees and the religious leaders were very jealous about this because a lot of the Jews were turning over to become Christians. And so the high priest and some of his buddies ended up throwing the apostles in prison. But as, as the Lord would have it, an angel busted them out in the middle of the night. And the angel said, hey, you just keep preaching the gospel. And they said, okay, awesome. So they keep preaching the gospel and then the, the, they find out that they're not in prison anymore. So then the Sanhedrin, the Council of the Sadducees, they, uh, they brought them back in and they questioned them and they flogged them. They beat them till they were, were a bleeding mess and they sent them on their way. In Acts 5.41, just listen to this verse. This is so strange. It says, so they, the apostles, went on their way from the presence of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They were praising God with blood dripping off of their back because they were counted worthy by God to grant them this suffering to bring glory to Jesus Christ. This is an odd picture. Why? Why would this be the case? Why would they rejoice? And why would God grant us suffering? In his wisdom, what is God, what is God doing in this? A couple different biblical reasons that God would grant us suffering and why living worthy of the gospel, part of that is suffering, unfortunately. Number one, suffering is refining us. God is using suffering as a hot flame to refine our faith. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you have been distressed by various trials, You've been distressed by various trials, various sufferings, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's saying, look, you're going to rejoice in your salvation even though distress and suffering is coming your way. God is using that as a flame to, to burn out the impurities of your faith, which is more precious than gold, so that when, Je- catch this, you've got to catch this, when Jesus bursts through the clouds in flaming fire with his angels, he's going to find us more worshipful so that the revelation of Jesus Christ It'll result in praise, honor, and glory. So that's what God is doing. That's part of what he's doing. He's refining us. He's loosening our grip on the world, and he's tightening our grip on heaven. Amen? And, and those of you, all, all of us in some measure have endured suffering, whether specifically for being a Christian or just because cancer came down the pike for you or because of the relationship difficulty that you deal with on a daily basis with your family, God is using it to refine you. And that's a glorious truth. Suffering is an opportunity for fellowship with Christ. Actually, in this book, in chapter 3, he's saying he's leaving behind his religiosity and all the treasure that comes with being a Pharisee. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and, check it, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul says there's a koinonia, There's an intimacy and a fellowship. When we suffer for the glory of God, it actually is binding us more closely with Jesus who suffered immeasurably more than all we can ever imagine. So it's an opportunity for fellowship with Christ. Lastly, suffering. Why does God grant us suffering? Suffering is producing eternal glory. This is a great truth. Please listen to me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 Verse 17, Paul says, for momentary light affliction. It seems like his affliction was anything but momentary or light. But he says that momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Somehow, I'm not here to convey how, but somehow, in God's infinite wisdom. He's using the suffering, the pain, the trial, the tribulations of your life to produce for you and for me this weighty, infinite glory into eternity. You know, what if as we're pressing into suffering, we first saw, you know, God is actually granting this and it's for my eternal glory. Somehow God is doing that, and I hope that encourages you. So living worthy of the gospel means striving together. It's suffering, trusting that God's actually granting that suffering in your life. And then lastly, it means humility. Living worthy of the gospel means humility. I really wanted to use an S word so that it'd be like striving together, suffering, and then selflessness is what I wanted to do. But I feel like humility is more the thrust of this last portion of our passage So anyways, trying to be faithful to the text. But I do enjoy when those line up, because I will do it. I will do it. Humility. Walking in humility is a key part of what it means to live worthy of the gospel. Humility is to say, I believe that God is infinitely impressive, and I am not. Humility is to say, God's mercy is what has set me free. Not my own religiosity, not my own church attendance, not my own ability to keep a law, but God's mercy. 
I am nothing apart from his grace. Humility says other people around me are actually more significant than me. I actually think other people around me are more important than myself. Jonathan Edwards, pastor and theologian, said uh, the pleasures of humility are really the most refined, inward, and exquisite delights in the world. This cultivation of humility deep down in the gut, Jonathan Edwards says, that's worth pursuing. So let's look at it together. Verse 3 says, do nothing from selfishness, or your translation might say selfish ambition, or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. This is easy stuff. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So Paul is, is exhorting this church, hey, how do you live worthy of the gospel? It, it's humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition. It's actually the same word that Paul uses in chapter 1, verse 17, of those who were preaching the gospel from selfish ambition, trying to kind of annoy Paul when, when he was in prison. That's a bad motive. And then he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Uh, empty conceit can actually be translated vainglory or empty glory. Can you think of any examples of empty glory in our culture these days? I was thinking about it this morning. Social media is a pit of empty glory. Look at me, right? And uh, man, we can get sucked right into that mentality. We live in an individualistic culture. I was talking with a friend yesterday, just even about how much like Disney and, and f- films, they teach kids that you're the individual. It doesn't matter what your parents think. You gotta break free from this family. Go do your own thing. You have a calling on your life. And so it's all about you. It's empty conceit. It's vain glory. Uh, humility of mind. This is a, a mindset that actually considers other people more important than yourselves. Not easy stuff. Uh, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So Paul's actually, now he's going to say, this is how you walk in humility. Look at Jesus. Last night, Jasmine and I were at a, a friend's birthday party. She's four years old. Her name is Charlotte. And uh, she got a puzzle, which I think for a four-year-old seemed pretty complicated, but she was rocking it. And as she's doing it, her mom, Erica, is setting up the puzzle box top saying, this is where this dragon goes. This is where this little purple thing is. And so she's looking to the puzzle box top to figure out how to build the puzzle. And I think Paul is kind of propping up in Christ Jesus and his humility and his selflessness and the way he emptied himself, he's propping him up as the puzzle box top and saying, this is what it looks like, Philippians and Philippi church. Verse six speaking of Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God uh, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of God, or the likeness of men, excuse me. So unfortunately, I don't have enough time. I mean, we could spend a lot of time on these verses, But a lot of Christians have scratched their heads, and rightly so, over what this means that Jesus existed in the form of God, yet emptied himself and became a man. So we know that uh, theologians call it the hypostatic union, that Jesus is 100% God, or or better said, truly God and truly man. Jesus is not 50-50. 
He's 100% God, 100% man. And he existed from eternity past in the form of God. Uh, that's actually a good translation for that. It, maybe your translation, I think the NIV says the nature of God or the essence of God, and that's fine. Um, but the idea is that he has eternally been God and he humbled himself, considering others more important than himself, by becoming a man. So in his lifetime, and this is something I heard from a pastor a long time ago. You can take it or leave it, but it's helped me understand like Jesus's earthly ministry. It seemed like there was times he didn't know something where he'd ask a question, who touched me? Um, or he would ask something and his disciples seemed to know something that he didn't yet have. So my understanding is this. When Jesus became a man, he set aside his divine privileges as, as God never forgetting somehow that he had these divine privileges, but choosing to humbly lay them aside to live as the God-man, as the Son of Man. So I think about it like this, and this is the helpful part I heard from a pastor. If you were to close your eyes right now, some of you can, you can do it if that helps. If you were to close your eyes right now, can you see? Trick question. Yes. You can see, but you're humbly choosing to close your eyes. So at any moment, you're not blind. You can open your eyes and you can see at any time. So my understanding is that Jesus humbly closed his eyes to his divine privileges, not regarding regarding equality with God, something to be grasped, something to be attained, um, but actually closing his eyes to those things in his earthly ministry so that he might come and be a bond servant. So that's my understanding. I I hope that might be helpful. Verse eight, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I think Paul's aim in saying we should not be selfish and proud and then showing us Jesus, I think Paul's aim is to hold up the Son of God, incarnate, crucified, even to the point of death on a cross, and then ascended again, so that it might just like cripple our pride as we look to the, like, oh, I'm a pretty humble person. And Paul's like, yeah, look at the cross. Look at Jesus. It's kind of like I was thinking about it. There's certain people that I don't want to golf with because I know they're better, like much better than I am. And like you almost strategically don't invite certain people to golf with you because they're going to humble you. You know, you think you're doing pretty good and Tiger Woods walks onto the golf course and he's going to make you look bad. It's kind of what Paul is doing with Jesus. Here's, here's Jesus who hits a, a hole in one every hole and it, it just humbles us. Oh yeah, Jesus, he's the one who's done this and he's the exalted Lord. And so this is deeply humbling for us. A couple ideas to cultivate humility and then we'll be done. Get a sip of water. Two ideas to cultivate humility, one towards God and one towards others zillion different ways you could do this. These are just a couple uh, biblical principles. Towards God, we should regularly humble ourselves under God's word. 
There's nothing more basic as a disciple and follower and apprentice of Jesus than to regularly humble yourself under God's word and let him dictate what is true and good and right. Let him dictate the direction and purpose and, and message of your life. Isaiah 66 verse 2, this is amazing. Yahweh says, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit. God Almighty is saying, I will particularly look to those who are humble and contrite. And he says, and the one who trembles at my word. The one who trembles at my word. Super basic, guys. We've heard this. Read your Bible and pray. But to posture yourself, to posture myself every day under the authoritative word of God and just to tremble. You are God, I am not. I heard John Piper, he said this. I don't, yeah, he said every day he gets out of bed and he gets on his knees and says, you are God, I am not. When we get into the word and we humble ourselves under it, it's as if we're saying, you are God, I am not. So I encourage you, if you're not a Bible reader, I I have a hard time getting into the Bible, make it your habit this week. Get into the Bible tomorrow morning. Pray, Spirit of God, show me what this means. Teach me your ways. I wanna humble myself under your word and, and your ways. So that's towards God. Just would encourage us to be taking in God's word. Toward others, I would encourage us to point out evidences of God's grace in others around you to point out evidences of God's grace in those around you. Like if you struggle with having a critical spirit like I do, or someone who's kind of, you're comparing your own significance and importance against so-and-so, like you do that, to intentionally kill that and die to that pride and empty glory by finding out evidences of God's grace in other people's lives to say, man, I I just see God has blessed you in this area. I just see that God has really gifted you in that. I just see that you have a a sweet spot for that area of walking with Jesus or the way that you do this, like you're you're intentionally saying it's not about me, it's, it's about you. Paul says that we're to consider others more important than ourselves. Uh, C.J. Mahaney, who wrote a book called Humility, pretty clever, he said this about this principle. Edifying words are the fruit of hearts that have been transformed by the gospel and evidence that a heart has been humbled by the gospel. Hear what he says. Only the humble are genuinely concerned about edifying and encouraging others. It is the humble who are perceptive. They're skilled in discerning the work of God in others because they care about others and want to serve others. Others-centered, others-focused. I want to encourage others, build up others. If you're here today, lastly, if if you don't know Jesus, then the call for you is to humble yourself before him today and to come to a saving knowledge of him. Peter says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So if that's you today and you don't know Jesus and you're doing life your own way, the call for you is to humble yourself under God's hand and to say, I believe you. I believe the cross is true. I believe that you really did send this Jesus to take on my sin at the cross and to rise again for my sins so that I might be forgiven. It's as simple as humbling yourself in prayer and saying, God, I, I am not God. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I need you to forgive me of my sin and give me new life. And he'll do that today for you. As, as we close, I just want to ask that we would just spend just a, a couple mo- moments of reflection 
This, is a, this has been a, um, a humbling passage for me particularly. What is it, as Christians, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, what is hindering you personally from living a life that's worthy of the gospel? As you, as you just sit back and you think about all that we've talked about, what is it in your life that maybe there's a blaring sin that you've not dealt with? Maybe there's a habit that you felt entrenched in that you need freedom from today by God's Spirit. Maybe there's a, you know, an attitude of selfishness and empty glory. What is it for you today as we've heard God's Word? What is it that you think, you know, this is hindering me in my walk with the Lord and striving together? Maybe you're kind of critical or maybe you're a lone wolf I don't need the church I don't need to go with other Christians um, whatever it is after all we've talked about I want to just give us a moment to pray confess those things to the Lord knowing that he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and uh, and I'll close in a word of prayer and ask that God's spirit would send us out of here um, all, all filled up so let's just take a moment to reflect and uh, ask God, what, where are those areas that I, I've not been living worthy of the gospel? Let's just take a, a minute or so. Lord, as we've considered the great and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, inevitably all of us fall short and all all of us have light that's been shown on our darkness. God, this morning we just humbly confess our pride. We confess our vain glory, our empty conceit. Lord, we confess our lusts where we confess our, our criticalness and our, our lone wolf mentality. Lord, we confess our fear of opposition, that we're alarmed by opposition. We confess as we see Jesus Christ and him crucified, that there is no one like him. God, I'm reminded as, as just we're sitting here and reflecting on, on the truths that we've heard and and where we fall short, I'm reminded of what Paul said in Galatians chapter two. He said, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Lord Jesus, King Jesus, you didn't reluctantly become a man and die for us. You gladly did it for our sake. Lord, as our King, help us to live worthy lives that reflect the glorious gospel, the sacred treasure that we have in earthen vessels. 
I pray, God, today for your people that you would send us out by your spirit, built up, encouraged, empowered. May we be a force against darkness in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. Use us to strive together, God. I pray against disunity and selfishness, Lord, that we would be united in spirit and purpose for the faith of the gospel. Lord, we pray that as suffering comes our way, that we would be those who are reminded that you're the God who's granting it and you're using it to refine us, to shape us, and to give us eternal glory. God, we just bend our knee to you today as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are God, we are not. We love you, Lord, and we love your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you guys. I hope you have a great rest of your week and uh, hope to see you again next Sunday. See you later.